Oh, Matthew chapter 22. Um, Jesus answered and spoke unto them again by parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. Now, this is typical of how the Lord begins so so much of his uh, teaching. He sets up an expectation, and then he, he dashes it, and we come to this with the expectation that it's going to be a happy story. It's a story about a king who's got a son who's getting married, and that sounds great. Uh, but then it all goes wrong, and then it all ends up with talk of judgment, etc. And this is, uh, I think, exactly how it all is, that there is this wonderful plan that God has set up to save men and women, and yet it's it's gone so wrong because of the strangeness of human behavior and rejecting what uh, he has prepared. And so it must be tragic to be God reading reading through this. Now the question is, is this a, a betrothal feast, or is, is it actually a marriage feast? And we might come back to that a little bit later. But I think we have to understand that in those days, a, a big banquet like this would have servants sent out to invite people, and then they agreed, yes, I shall come. But then, when the actual uh, time of the, the banquet came, other servants were sent to them, who then sort of escorted them from their home to the to the wedding, to the, to the banquet in this case. Now, if you then said, having originally agreed, if you then said, oh, no, I'm not coming, well, the whole thing has been set up, you've given your agreement, and now the other servant comes and says, <clears throat> you know, it's time to go now, uh, escorts you to the to the banquet and gives you the, uh, the garment, the wedding garment in this case, uh, so that so that you can go into the, the banquet, etc., properly dressed, and you say, no, I'm not, I'm not coming. This is uh, absolutely something seriously wrong here, and that so many people who were invited said this, this is an element of unreality that jumps out of us from the, from the pages of this story. Now, there's a passage in Zephaniah 1 that I think the Lord had in mind, and I'll read it to you, it's Zephaniah 1, uh, 7 and 8. The day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has bid his guests, and it shall come to pass that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now what's all that about? It's talking about Josiah's time when the princes and the king's sons, Josiah's sons, apparently joined with him in the great reformation that he made, but it was only a surface level response because God says in Zephaniah and elsewhere, I'm going to judge and and, and condemn you people for what you've done. So you can see then that um, really Israel had said yes to the invitation insofar as they had responded very positively to the teaching of John the Baptist. And yet now, as it were, it actually came uh, time to go into the wedding they didn't want to know, and, and this was uh, this was the whole problem, that they had given their agreement, but they weren't following through on it. Now, we read three times about the servants. He sends forth his servants, verse 3, uh, to invite them, first of all, to the wedding, uh, and then he sends other servants and, and uh, appeals to them, uh, and then they, they kill some of the servants, um, and then... He sends out other servants to invite anyone off the street to come immediately. And then uh, he uh, uses his servants 
to bind up these people and uh, uh, who, who haven't come uh, uh, and destroy them. Now, who are then these these servants? And, sorry, he uses his servants to uh, bind and uh, cast into darkness the man without the wedding garment. Now, who are these servants? The first group of servants are clearly the Old Testament prophets, my servants, the prophets. And then who are the other servants who, who after the Old Testament prophets are killed and after the city, Jerusalem, has been burnt up, is other servants sent out? Well, all the way through, the, the word apostello is used, and I would say that that is talking about the uh, really the, uh, the sending out of the apostles, and yet the appeal goes on right up to the end, and so it includes us too. And who are the servants then who bind the man who hasn't got the wedding garment? Well, in the other parables, the servants, and again the, the same word is used, the servants who actually uh, minister the condemnation to people are the angels. So these servants have different meanings over time. But what I want to, to bring out is that we who are also God's servants, in that we are going out to appeal to men and women, to anybody to just come in, because the, the dinner, as it were, is sitting on the table getting cold, we, as God's servants making that appeal, are absolutely in a seamless continuity with the apostles, who were also sent out straight away after the uh, after the city was burnt. Uh, to to uh, sorry, after the uh, the first servants were killed, uh, those other servants that are sent out, these were the apostles and the other servants, the Old Testament prophets and the angels who are also God's servants. So you see, by being God's servant today, you are seamlessly connected with angels, the first century apostles, and the Old Testament prophets. We're all together. We are not, in that sense, in terms of our significance in the divine sort of project or, or program, we are no less than them. And that's a scary thing, that they are not sort of icons to be looked at and think, oh, well, that was the apostles, that was the Old Testament prophets. That was the problem with Judaism. It's a problem with uh, Roman Catholicism and those who worship the saints, like Russian Orthodox Church, etc. But there are these sort of holy people who are so far away from us, to whom we are to look sort of in, uh, with huge respect, etc., uh, as if they're somehow in another world. No, we likewise are God's servants. And we are, in essence, doing the, the same work as, as they were doing. And that's uh, why in uh, Revelation 22, verse 9, that angel says to John, he, the angel talks about him being of your brethren, the prophets. Uh, so that the angel brings the three together. John was an apostle, and he says, your brethren were the prophets, and I am, you know, uh, one with you, of like your brethren, the prophets. So they come out, verse 3, to, uh, the servants go out, verse 3, to, to call them that were bidden. Now, that's a poor translation, because the word for bidden in, in the, the Greek is the same as for call. Uh, to call the called. Now, what does that mean? This doesn't necessarily mean that there is a list of called ones and we are going out to call them. It's, it's not, I suggest, that God has a list in heaven of all these names of the ones who are to be called. 
We go out into the world and spread the gospel, and if our spreading of the gospel happens to coincide with one of the called ones, we've got a convert. That's not, I believe, the picture. But let's say you're standing on a street corner handing out tracts, ten people walk by, take a tract, ah, that one happens to be one on God's list. Well, good, you, you hit right. It's like you're sort of spreading your, yourself so widely in order to just possibly pick up somebody. You know, you're shooting all around the, the target just hoping that one of your shots might just hit it. I don't think that's the case because <laughs> preaching the gospel is not a hit and miss affair. This Greek word kaleo that's translated to call, it really means to command and there's certainly the element of persuasion in it, of, you know, something more than passively passing an invitation. And the call is to whomsoever will. You know, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will. That's a bit meaningless. If, you know, you're thinking, you say to a guy, well, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. But you're thinking, well, mate, if you're not, if you're not on the list that was made up from the beginning, <laughs> tough, isn't it? No, no, that, that, that can't be, uh, that can't be the case at all. So what does it mean then to call the called? Because these are the same words. Call them that were bidden is trying to put a false distinction there. To call the called, I would say that he's making the point that whoever you call is called. If I say to you, hey, I invite you to have a coffee with me at six o'clock this evening uh, in my apartment, like it or not, I've invited you. And you can't turn around and say, well, Duncan didn't invite me to drink coffee with him at six o'clock tonight. I just invited you, buddy, so you're, you're called. You see what I'm saying? So whoever hears the call... Is called. Simple as that. And that's how it works. And that means that the number of the called depends upon how many people we give the message to. Going back to the brother standing on a street corner handing out tracts, those ten people he handed the tracts out to were all called. And if he stays there for a bit longer and hands out another ten, there's another ten called. And if he stays a bit longer and hands out another twenty, there's another twenty called. Each one of them is, in that sense, called. Now, <clears throat> you could argue, of course, that Israel were specifically called, gave their agreement, and then didn't come, uh, both in the Old Testament times and then in the ministry of John. And uh, that is, uh, I guess, in a sense, how it was. Um, but we can't get away from... The fact that God is to some degree open-ended and he has delegated his work to us. And insofar as we do that work, so it will prosper. Now, <clears throat> the point is made repeatedly in this chapter, that every, in this parable, that everything is now ready. Everything is ready. How, how are you to interpret that? That the, the wedding supper, which is clearly the messianic banquet... Uh, the kingdom of God was ready from Old Testament times it was ready uh, in New Testament times and right after the city was burnt, Jerusalem in AD 70 it was ready then and it's ready now now how do you understand that? I can only say that potentially the kingdom of God could have come at all those times but there was this delay even before the coming of Jesus now of course you're going to say Yes, but wasn't it all prophesied that Jesus was going to come and die, and, and etc., and uh, that had to happen? 
Well, I don't think anything had to happen, because you can't draw a circle around God and say, this has got to happen. Uh, it's not for us to do that. All you can say is that all those Old Testament anticipations of what actually we know happened would have been fulfilled in some other way. Because we're so familiar with the way in which they were fulfilled, it's easy to assume that that was the only way that it could have happened. But that's just because we're looking with the hindsight from with the hindsight that, that we have, that we can look back on history. But it, it all could have come true in another way. The parable makes it clear, and this is clear in other teaching of Scripture as well, that all was ready. And the problem was that they would not come. Where it gets uh, grippingly exciting is that uh, the Lord says in Matthew twenty four fourteen that when the gospel has gone into all the world, then shall the end come. And you've got the same idea here, that when the wedding is furnished, as the AV says, with guests, and the word literally means when it's filled up, and all the places are filled, then, well, then the party starts. So then there is a, a degree to which the quicker we preach the gospel and get that specific number of people uh, not just called to the wedding, but actually the place is filled, then the end will come. And that's why there is no calendar date for the coming of Christ, uh, simply because there isn't one. Because there's not a date, but instead I would say there are preconditions. And the quicker we get on and fulfill them, in, you know, standing on your street corner, in a figurative sense, as it were, handing out your tracts, the quicker you, you, you get on and get those people into God's kingdom, the quicker it will come. Well, going back a little bit, um, still in verse 3, the, the initially the guests, the, the first lot, uh, would not come, and it means they will not come. It's the same word recently used by the Lord in chapter 21, verse 29, about the two sons, uh, both of whom uh, did not or would not work in the vineyard. The first son said, or one of the sons said, I will not, I would not work. And then he repented and goes. Now, the Lord interprets that as response to the teaching of John. He says that, uh, you know, John the Baptist came uh, and, uh, you know, the harlots, uh, the prostitutes uh, and the tax collectors repented and went. But you who said, you Jews who said, yes, we will go, you didn't repent when you saw that. So then this would again tie it in to an interpretation connected with uh, with John the Baptist and Israel's you know, refusal to respond. But just think of a few other times when this uh, phrase, would not, will not, uh, is used. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 23, verse 4, the Jews would not or will not help their brother with his burden. The unforgiving debtor, Matthew 18, verse 30, would not forgive his brother. The older brother, Luke 15, 28, would not go in to the uh, celebration banquet. Very similar. So, what does it mean to say, I will not? Well, the similarity with the prodigal parable in Luke 15, 28 is pretty major. But there again, you've got an evening banquet and somebody will not go in. And why will they not go in? Because they will not accept their brother. There's no good thinking, well, this is all about Jews. You know, we, we've accepted the gospel. 
I, I think probing deeper, the Lord's teaching about those who say, I will not, is always in the context of their attitude to their brother and their attitude to others, particularly within the context of forgiveness. So the older brother who says, I will not go into the banquet, is really like these people here saying, I won't go. And this is a tragedy, that there will be people, according to this quite clear teaching there in the the prodigal parable, there will be people who will not be in the kingdom of God because of their attitude to their brother. 22 verse 4 Again he sent forth other servants. That word is, I think, redundant, unless it is to build up the impression of the king's continued effort with these guests. He says, you know, um, verse 4, Tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner. And, you know, it is an unreality of the story that the dinner, as it were, is cold on the table for so long. But that is the, I, I guess, the strangeness of God's work with us, that he's so open to, to us. Now, this word prepared, this is repeatedly used about the work of John the Baptist, the same Greek word, that he came to prepare the way. And he did, you know, he did his work. The problem was that Israel didn't repent. So prepared is connected with John the Baptist preparing Israel preparing the way for Christ, but they didn't want it. Now, a unique place in God's kingdom has been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. It's the same word when Jesus says, come and enter the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. Hebrews eleven sixteen, he has prepared for them a city. For uh, Peter 1, our salvation is prepared from the start. John fourteen two, I go to prepare a place, uh, an abiding place, a a room in God's kingdom for you. And I think this explains to me, the otherwise, for me anyway, enigmatic word of the Lord in John 7 verse 6, where he says to the Jews, your time is always ready. It's the same word, prepared. It's as if he's saying, look, the the kingdom is ready and waiting. If you will repent, your time is always ready the whole thing can start. And I wonder if that implies that it is the repentance of Israel, the agreement of Israel to come into the banquet, which is the final, I think, uh, sign of the coming of Christ. That is what will bring it, and fruit on the fig tree, the generation that sees even the beginnings of fruit on the fig tree, the fig tree is Israel, fruit on the fig tree is spiritual fruit, that generation will see the coming of Christ. And he says, well, my, my oxen and my fatlings are killed. It could be implying the Mosaic system has ended, because killed there is the word for sacrifice. Uh, or it could be an intensive plural, the great sacrifice, the great ox, the great fatling, which was, uh, was the Lord Jesus. And the, those same terms uh, are used in Hebrews 10.4 and uh, 9.13, about the sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate uh, ox, as it were. So you could be saying now, uh, at this point, um, that, you know, Jesus has died, the Old Testament uh, mosaic sacrificial system is finished, all things, as he says, are now ready, are prepared. 
come to the marriage. It's very similar to the parable we looked at last week at the end of Matthew 21 of the vineyard, that everything was done for the vineyard. Absolutely everything was ready. It's no good blaming God uh, for any inability of, of man to reach salvation, as is often done. Well, he says, come to to the marriage, verse, verse 4. Same word used when the Lord says, follow me. Come to me, follow me, follow me in. Come unto me. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. All, all the same the same word. Um, and it's just a tragedy, really, that all this has been prepared and God is there urging people into the kingdom and continuing again and again to make this effort with people. And verse 5, they made light of it. But they made light of it. And that word but you know, just brings out the, the whole tragedy of, of God's dealings with us. And this uh, making light of it, it's the same word in Hebrews 2 verse 9, um, how shall we escape if we neglect, if we make light of such great salvation? It's not as if we say, I'm an atheist, so mate, I'm not interested. Not at all. Uh, the idea is that, yeah, 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 but like we don't take it that seriously. And that's where the whole thing cuts pretty hard, because they had said yes to the initial invitation when they said yes to John the Baptist. And they were baptized in the thousands, it would seem, crowds, uh, all Jerusalem, in a, in a metaphorical sense, went out to John and were baptized, confessing their sins. They'd made a theoretical confession of sin, they'd been baptized, and according to Acts 19.4, the message of John the Baptist was about Jesus. They had accepted this message. But actually, the personal reality that now you can go into God's kingdom, you personally will be saved. They made light of it. Now that cuts pretty close because we have been baptized. We have repented, or we say we have repented. We have accepted a message about Jesus. Uh, we are not atheists, etc. And yet we can make light of the whole thing if we don't really accept that now you really can enter God's kingdom. And if you ask that question to, to people you know, who've been baptized, etc., Will you be in God's kingdom? They'll be like, oh, well, I don't know, I'm a sinner, I, I don't know, I hope so, I really don't know. You know what, I, I'm really weak in my life. I don't know, let's wait and see. No, no, this is a making light of it. If you really believe that you will be in God's kingdom, and this is the good news, that we shall be saved, and that we can at this point in time say that, yes, by grace I will be saved. No, I should not be, but by grace I believe I will be there. If we can say that, that radically changes human life in practice. Radically changes it. Because we will become now kingdom people. What do they do? One went to his farm. This one to his farm is how the Greek literally reads. And this one to his trading. Maybe Jesus was sort of nodding at people who are walking past. Uh, it just to you know, help us to see that this is, is a real reality. Now one goes to his farm. Now wait a minute. Banquets happen in the evening, and you can see that, I think, from the story, the story line, because the guy doesn't have the wedding garment when the, the king comes in. He's thrown out into the darkness outside. So it's after dark. This is an evening banquet. It started in the evening. And this guy won't come. He says, I've got to go to my farm. Where do farmers live? Hello? Where do farmers live? They live on a farm, right? Okay. 
And the other guy, he goes to his trading. He didn't do trading, or literally his merchanting, his merchandising. You don't do that in the Middle East in the evening. So, these people went to their farm, or the guy lives on his farm, you know, uh, but they went to their farm and to their merchandising in their mind. This is a, a, a tremendous insight, a psychological insight in, into human response to, to the gospel. And that's exactly how it is. That the clear invitation that we shall be saved and we shall by grace be in God's kingdom, we go off in our minds. Oh, now, what am I doing tomorrow at work? Oh, man, yeah, I uh, saw in this problem, out that problem, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Rather than being gripped above all, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, in your heart, in your mind, however you wish to put it, uh, by the reality that God has prepared the kingdom and wants, desperately wants to give it to me. He wants to see me there. Wow. But in their mind, they go off to all these other things. And this is our terrible problem, isn't it? With uh, retaining spirituality, with maintaining spiritual mindedness. And the mind just wanders off, you know, to your farm, to your trading, to your job, blah, blah. But others uh, took the servants, took them by force. Uh, and that word is used about uh, the uh, taking of Jesus by force, and treated them shamefully. Again, uh, Luke eighteen thirty two about Jesus, he shall be treated shamefully in his death. Um, and I think the point is that the similarity of language between what they did to the servants and what we know was done to Jesus is to show us that in all suffering for the gospel, we are sharing in his crucifixion sufferings. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, we were shamefully treated by the Jews when we preached the gospel to them. Same word, he picked this up. He realized that what he suffered at the hands of the Jews in preaching the gospel was in essence what Jesus suffered as well, and it was all in terms of what's predicted in this parable. The question I think arises, though, is not the response of this king a little bit over the top, that, all right, these guys don't want to come, but he goes uh, with his army and burns up their city. Verse 7. He's wroth, he's angry. Now, I think, again, we have to understand a little bit of the, uh, the context Often the king's son would be pronounced as heir to the throne uh, when he got married. He would be pronounced as the next king, as that he was in line when he got married. And the guests were invited to this kind of banquet to kind of test their political loyalty. The whole thing of going to banquets and everything to do with eating, in fact, it was a political statement in the Middle East of the first century. To refuse an invitation to a king's banquet was highly significant. It was tantamount, really, to a declaration of disloyalty, effectively saying, we will not have this man reign over us. But, of course, the problem was, in this case, in the parable, that they had initially said yes, but then they didn't pitch. So, again, it is their response to John's message of the kingdom that, yes, we will have this man reign over us, but when it comes to it, you really can be in the kingdom. You can really be at the messianic banquet. Now nah, I'm going off to my farm. That's the thing. 
And that's the, the strangeness of our rejection, or any rejection, of the, the personal calling that you will be saved. That if Jesus were to come back right now, if you're baptized in Christ, by grace we should be confident, with humility, of course, that I will be there. Frankly, if that's not the message, then I don't see the gospel as good news. I see it's very worrying news that you are responsible to judgment and you're going to come to day of judgment and we wish you the best. That's, that's not good news. The good news is of salvation in God's kingdom. Now I know, I'm not saying once saved, always saved, because we can chuck it all away tomorrow. Uh, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we cannot say at this minute in time, at this second, if the Lord comes now by grace, I believe I will be saved. Now that is the good news of the kingdom. And that is the invitation into the banquet. Well, when the king heard of all this uh, uh, killing of his servants and, and so forth, he was wroth, he was angry, and it was in his wrath that he burnt up their city. The same word used in the Olivet Prophecy in Luke 21, 23, um, there shall be wrath upon this people, God's wrath. And incidentally, you read about this uh, wrath uh, of God a number of times in the New Testament, in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Thessalonians 1, and I would suggest that the context in those passages is the same. It is the wrath of God upon uh, as Paul puts it, the children of disobedience, Ephesians 5, 6. And the context is of Israel, of Israel who had said no and who were going to experience the wrath of God in AD 70. I don't think those passages are saying that the wrath of God is upon all his children just by reason of being human. I don't think God is mad with people just because they're human. I don't think God sees a human fetus conceived and a baby born and like gets mad and has the wrath, his wrath against a person because they are human. That, that, that seems to me a completely wrong understanding of what it means to be human, and if you like, of, of human nature. So then, he sends forth his armies, called in Daniel 9, the people of the prince. Um, those Roman soldiers who did what they did uh, were acting under God's direct command and control. So he, he goes and destroys those murderers. 21.41, we just had it in the previous parable. Um, <clears throat> they had, the Jews had said that uh, the punishment for those who killed the son who was sent to the vineyard should be that uh, they should be destroyed, those wicked men. And now the Lord is saying, yes, those murderers will be destroyed. And it's the same word that's used about perishing. And you read it a lot um, in John's Gospel, and also in 2 Peter 3, that talks about the destruction or the perishing of the heavens and earth uh, at the time of AD 70, the Jewish system. Now, when you read in John 3 that uh, the believer in Christ will not perish, I'd like to suggest, or be destroyed, it's the same word here, he destroyed those murderers. Uh, I think John, in the very Jewish context in which he's writing, is in, in the first instance, in the first instance, is saying, if you believe in Christ, you will not be destroyed when God does fulfill this parable and destroys those murderers. You will not perish with the, the rest of the Jews who are going to perish here in Jerusalem uh, because uh, of God's judgment. And of course we know from the Lord's Olivet Prophecy said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then 
flee, and those who uh, accepted that didn't perish. So then you could say that no true Christian perished in what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. And so in the first instance, all John's talk about uh, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life, I think he's talking in the first instance about the salvation of that generation of Christians from the judgment upon Jerusalem in AD 70. So again, after this, more servants are sent out, saying, look, the wedding is ready, but those who have been invited were not worthy. John, as John the Baptist preached that people should bring forth fruit worthy, same word, of repentance. That's in Luke 3, 8. Now, what he's saying here then is that uh, those people who responded to John were not worthy. They didn't really respond to John. And so go, therefore, verse 9, and invite anyone in. And it's the same idea in, in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and teach all nations. So this is a, uh, a kind of a lead-up to the Great Commission, uh, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he says that they are to go uh, into the highways, and the word that's used there is an odd word, and it literally means, as I understand it, the parting of the ways. Uh, one man went to his farm, another went to his uh, merchandise, his trading, and yet, it's the same word, they were to come to the wedding. They should have went, as it were, or gone to the wedding. So there's the two ways, to go in your mind to your farm, even though you're already on your farm, uh, or to go uh, to, to God's kingdom. And so in our preaching, we are to bring people to that realization that there is only two ways in life. We're to bring them to that realization of the fork in the road. That that is, as I say, the highway is, in that sense, a bad translation. Uh, and to urge them, of course, to, to come uh, in the way to God's kingdom. Uh, and as many as you find, and again I suggest that that is implying that God is kind of working to a number, or it could uh, sort of be a, a kind of a play uh, with language there, as if to say as many as you call are called. As many as you shall find. We read about the Lord Jesus finding and going out to find the lost sheep. Again, the word is used, he went out to find uh, workers in the vineyard and found, for the vineyard and found them idle in the marketplace. And yet we are sent out to find people. And so any work of evangelism you do, any attempt you make to introduce the gospel to others, you have the Lord Jesus working with you. And you definitely will feel that special presence in, 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 uh, in your life, his special presence. So they went out, verse 10, and it's the same word in Mark 16, 20, they went out and preached everywhere. Clearly there's an allusion here to the Great Commission. They gathered uh, together, verse 10, they gathered together as many as they found, and it's the same word, Matthew thirteen forty seven. the net is put into the sea of nations and gathers together fish of every kind. Bad and good, as the parable here uh, says. So then, th this was uh, a very uh, difficult thing to do, because people were used to having an invitation, you said yes to the invitation, and then 
and you were uh, escorted at some later point when the banquet actually started to the, uh, the to the banquet. Well, that was hard to believe. That guys, you know what? Something's gone wrong. The the food is on the table, and it's getting cold. Please come straight away. No, there's no prior invitation and all that stuff. There's an urgency for you to come right now. And a lot of people would have said no. I think that's what we're to imagine, take the, uh, take the parable forward. Uh, that, that's, I think, uh, how we're to imagine it. But a lot of people would have said no because they couldn't believe it. And that's actually why a lot of people reject the gospel now. Because it's too good news. Can it really be so? Can I, with all my dysfunction, sin and so forth, live forever in God's kingdom? Yes, you can. Well, they were to gather together all as many as they found. And again, the idea of all, as many as, the word all would, I think, be um, be redundant, unless the idea is being developed, that God is working to a number. And you actually have got that in Romans 11.25, where Paul talks about how the full number of the Gentiles must come in. Same word, come in to the, the wedding feast, to the banquet. So then the quicker that full number is reached, the quicker Jesus will come. And of course the point is made that both bad and good are gathered. In other words, the servants are not to prejudge. And this is the whole problem with so much so-called preaching or evangelism that there's the concern on the part of the preachers, are oh, that person's, I think, I think she's a lesbo. I, 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 I suspect that he's an alcoholic. Oh, 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 look, no, no, there's not a point. Get them in. That is the clear message. Go out and tell absolutely everybody and get them in to the banquet. That's your job. And it is not your job to say, oh, but I think you're in the bad category. No, you are told that all they've got to do is say yes. And yes, you are told ahead of time they'll be bad and good. You are told ahead of time, likewise, that the, the wheat has to grow with the, the weeds growing next to it, and it is not for you to judge. That is, in the bigger picture, the truth and the reality of the picture, but you are not to judge that. So then, this also <laughs> opens a, a rather controversial question, but as I said, uh, eating together had religious significance. They were to invite these people into a banquet, and the implication is that these people are reclining at table. The guests are seated, but it, the Greek word means to recline. They are reclined at the table, both bad and good. Some of them don't have wedding garments on, even. They've refused the garment that was offered at the door. Uh, and they're sitting there, and when the king comes, some of them are going to get chucked out. But the point is that they are, that the, the feast has started, as it were, before he comes in. This is exactly the picture. We should have an open table. Well, the Lord's table is ultimately open. If it's the Lord's table, if you're closing it, then it's, you've made it your table. The Lord's table is open. You bring people in and they sit. And it must be an allusion to the breaking of bread, surely, because this is the foretaste of the Messianic banquet. They're sitting there. All your job is to, to do is to get people in. It's not your feast, not your party. They sit there. Some of them got the wedding garment on, which is baptism, the righteousness of Christ. Some haven't. And there's bad and good there. Let's face it. 
And whilst they're reclining at, at the table, in other words, the breaking of bread, the ecclesia now is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The party, the kingdom of God has in a sense started, in a limited sense, but then the king will come and some will be ejected from it. And that's for him to do, not for us. And of course the whole point is, the whole point of the story is, it's not a case of bad and good. It's a case of who's got the wedding garment on. Because you see, we're set up, like I started by saying, that Jesus sets up expectations and then kind of dashes them. We're set up to expect that, uh, okay, yes, the bad and the good are are there. And then the king comes and says, ah, the bad one's over there. No, he doesn't. He comes in and says, you haven't got a wedding garment on, get out. And who was the bloke with the, without the wedding garment? Well, he would have been the person who thought, well, I'm quite adequately dressed. I'm very nicely dressed, actually. I don't need the wedding garment that you're offering at the door. I'll go in in my clothes, thank you. It's that man who thinks he's righteous who's the one who's chucked out. And the, the king comes in to see them, verse 11. You know what, that's just the same word that's been used uh, about the triumphal entry, or the parody of the triumphal entry. Jesus came into Jerusalem. He comes into the temple and he looks around. The king came in to see the guests. And Jesus is saying, look, judgment is beginning at the house or the temple of God. And so he gives the question, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? That's a rhetorical question, of course. He knew, the king knew, yeah, you think your clothes are good enough, but I wanted you to take the wedding garment of uh, the righteousness of Christ. And the man is speechless, that he has no answer. And in some of the pictures of judgment, the, the rejected argue back, when did we see you hungry? And, and so forth. Um, Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works in your name? But I, you can either say, well, different ones of the rejected will respond in different ways. Some speechless, <clears throat> some uh, will justify themselves. Or you could say that if you put all those pictures of judgment together, it comes out to a kind of a chronological picture. They start off, oh, Jesus, yeah, Lord, Lord. And then it sort of, the smile leaves their face. And they say, but wait a minute, we did a whole load of good works for you. And then the desperate knocking on the door, like the virgins let us in, anyway let us in. And finally the speechlessness and the outer darkness uh, of, uh, of condemnation. Well, the Lord is going to say to the servants, or the angels, bind him and cast him out into outer darkness. You know, all those words are used about the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, take him away. Bind him, take him away, cast him. It's all used about Jesus. And if you look in my notes, uh, you'll see the, the reference. Of the, it's all, all those words are used about the crucifixion of Jesus. So what's the point there? That the crucifixion of Jesus is described uh, in the same language as the condemnation of the wicked. And I think the point is that Jesus on the cross identified with condemned human beings to such an extent, to such an extent, that he felt it. When he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Old Testament is full of reference to the fact that God will not forsake the righteous, but he will forsake the wicked. 
And the Lord had to such an extent uh, identified with condemned humanity that he almost felt condemned, as it were. And all that happened to him was the binding, uh, casting away, taking him away, and all this. Uh, away with him, away with him, crucify him. This is exactly the same word as a cast him away, uh, etc. The Lord is not like the judge who issues a sentence on a sinner that he hasn't experienced himself, like go and sit for ten years in prison when a guy's never spent a day in prison, the actual judge. No, Jesus will be the just judge because he, although he was not a sinner and was not in that sense condemned, he has felt condemnation because he's so identified with us. And so never think that your sin in that sense has separated you so far from Jesus. Although he never sinned, he has so engaged with us that he feels exactly, even the feelings, of the condemned. And of course, that's why in Hebrews we read that we uh, should look at those who are in need and we should, as it were, suffer with them as if we were in the body with them. That's just exactly what the Son of God has, has done for us. Thank you.